The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning. So it looks like uh, regardless of whether there's sun to hide from, everybody just pretty much sits in the shade. So that's kind of fun to watch. So anyway, um, you can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 43. Um, Please turn or scroll in your Bibles. It's kind of funny that uh, a thousand years of publishing books and we're going back to scrolling. Um, There's really nothing new under the sun. Uh, So I've been enjoying uh, hearing from our pastors over the past few weeks as they have worked through this small portion of Isaiah together. Um, As you know, um, I'm not the best speaker you've ever heard. Uh, I have no desire to tickle your ears with the latest and the greatest, but desire very much that you grow up into full maturity in Jesus Christ. Whereas I may not be a silver-tongued speaker, Isaiah, Isaiah, as we will find today, truly is. But I have to warn you, he's not going to pull any punches along the way. As it has been said by others before me, Isaiah is a masterful writer. Every verse seems to contain a theme or a word that connects uh, the flow of the passage, uh, both through certain sections as well as how it fits perfectly within the whole of the book. As Isaiah lays out this section of the book, he cycles through the frailty of man, the futility of false gods and the effort of man to attempt to satisfy himself with a God made in his own image. In contrast to this, there is a steady drumbeat proclaiming the true nature of the redeeming, holy, loving Savior God, the one who stoops low to comfort his people. John took us through chapter 42 previously, two weeks ago, He showed us that despite Israel's unfaithfulness, that God would send his servant Jesus to faithfully bring justice to the nations. This is the means of salvation to Israel and to all who would believe. This passage is set up similarly to the passages around it. Although each slightly varies, the gist is this. Number one, Israel has failed in their faithfulness to God and has incurred his judgment. Number two, Despite their failure, God comforts them. Number three, God reminds them of who he is and what he has done for them. And number four, he makes mention of their propensity to stray from him. So you'll see that cycle repeat uh, throughout this passage in Isaiah. I'll give you a little for instance, just using that passage that John spoke on um, last or two weeks ago. Um, Number one, Israel failed in their covenant faithfulness. So chapter 41, 28, if you look there, it says, But when I look, there is no one among these. There is no counselor who, when I ask, gives me an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Then it shifts to the second phase. Despite their failure, in 42.1, it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice for the nations. God comforts them by his actions. 
And then the third phase you see is God reminds them who he is. Chapter 42, verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Phase four then, it shifts into Isaiah makes mention of their propensity to stray and their consequent judgment. Verse 24 says, who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on them the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. In our own passage, we see the same method that Isaiah deploys with the same basic features. The reason that I mention it is because the chapter breaks don't always show the full cycle. So we're going to kind of come into uh, number two on that phase as we come in. So in 42, the end of 42, we saw um, the downer, if you will, of Israel's uh, repeated disobedience, their propensity to fall back into sin, to reject their good and faithful Lord, their God, their creator. So the following, this reminder of judgment for their unfaithfulness in the end of chapter 42, chapter 43 begins with God dispelling their fears and bringing them comfort. 43 verse 1 starts, but now thus says the Lord. I don't know about you, but for me, I, I think we often blaze past these words, looking to what God has spoken, and fail to realize, realize the amazingness that he spoke. Remember, in 41.21, God taunts idol worship. He requests proof from those who place their trust in idols. This is the same concept that Jordan drew us to last week. But in 41, 21 through 24, God says, let them, bring, let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former three things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things that are to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's to do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed or be terrified. Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing, an abomination to he who chooses you. In contrast to the muteness of false gods, the Lord himself speaks. Isaiah reminds Israel who is speaking in that next few, the next few words there. It says, it is he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, this is one of the many verses in this passage where we see the creative nature of our saving God. Not only does he speak, but he acts and he creates. He's in full contrast to the feudal gods who are created in the heart of man, made after man's image or imagination, and must be created by man out of word or metal, even his ideologies. In contrast to that, God is the one who creates. He's the one who speaks. He's the one who acts. 
Though the creation of the universe comes into play in other passages in Isaiah, which are designed to show God's greatness and man's responsibility to him, this verse hones in specifically on the creation and the formation of the people of God. The same idea is reiterated in verse 15. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel. This is the creator of his people the only God who acts, the only one in whom his people can find true and lasting comfort. His people, however, have gone astray. They are displaced and under his wrath. He has in 42.25 says, poured on them the heat of his anger. But rather, than, excuse me, but rather than writing them off and sealing their fate, he comforts them and says, fear not. To the losing heart, to those who lose heart, he calls them to let go of their fears and to trust in him. This is not a baseless trust, but a trust based in his character and action. Fear not. Why? For I have redeemed you. He is not only the creator of his people, but he is their redeemer. Remember the context. They are in exile. Chapter 45 prophesies that Cyrus is about to come and God will give Babylon into his hand. God promises to raise Cyrus up to bring his people home. Their protection comes from no one else but their redeemer the one who has called them by name. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Think about that with me. You are mine. What God says to his people. Reflect on it today. When we live in a day when identity is a crisis, these words should resonate with us. In a world struggling to find true and lasting identity, listen to the comforting, redeeming God who says, you are mine. God's ownership and authority since Adam has both been enjoyed and rejected. It is the belonging for which all men were created, but few find. It is the authority against which all sinners chafe. But to his own, he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. He will take them through the coming hardships. But why? Verse 3 tells us, for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One, your Savior. The comfort that he provides to his people is based on who he is. He is the Savior. It is upon this point that I would like our attention to be drawn today. Our God is the only Savior. This is not a popular message of the day. No one wants to hear that they are wrong. No one wants to hear that... Uh, that not everyone's a winner. <laughs> no one wants to hear that, that there is good news and bad news. We only suffer good news. 
But here we have the most blessed news, the best news of all time, and that is our God is our only Savior. As Savior, our God dispels fear. He dispels fear based on who he is. He is the Redeemer. They belong to him. He has called them by name. Secondly, as Savior, he dispels fear based on his proximity to his people. He says in verse 5, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This God as Savior dispels fear because he is God with us. He is the Emmanuel of Isaiah 7:14. The Savior's nearness to his people dispels fear and provides comfort. Last week, Jordan applied the text and touched on fear. We live in fearful times. The call for us as God's people to trust God, our Savior, when he says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. When he says, fear not, for I am with you. Do we really trust him with our health, with our families, with our freedom, with his sovereign control over the temporal rulers of our world? Let us look to him and find our safety. Let us find our peace in him, our comfort in him alone. For our Savior is, as the scripture tells us, without comparison. Verse 10 says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be after. Our saving, saving God has no peers. He is eternal and exclusive. Because he is exclusive, without him there is no salvation. Notice the strength of the statement, his statement in verse 11. He says, I, I the Lord, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Remember that Israel, since Solomon, has put their hope in military strength, in the strength of foreign nations, in the strength of false gods. This so-called strength has left them weak and wounded, distressed, fearful, and under the foot of men and the wrath of God. Here, God is reminding them that he is their savior. Without him, there is no salvation. May I ask us to reflect on this this morning? In what are you placing your hope for this life or the next? In what do you seek a savior? When you are sick, is your response to go to the Lord in prayer or first reach to the medicine cabinet? When you are sad, do you pray? Or do you first seek professional help, medical attention, or a quick distraction? When you are afraid of your health, your family, your life, your marriage, do you seek the incomparable saving God? Or do you try to fix yourself up? so that you can present yourself as happy, healthy, stable, and put together? 
Are you content with the sham of how a Christian should look? I have news for you, this facade will never last. It will leave you longing, longing for something better, longing for something greater, longing for something that you have been created for. You have been created, you have been formed to have only one savior and his power is unstoppable. Let's look in verse 13 where it says, also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? This verse will strike fear into the heart of the lost and it will bring comfort to those who he has set his love upon. Verse 14 through 21 says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and I bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your king. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. The Lord has tremendous plans for his people. He has rescued and will continue to do so. He tells them in verse 19, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? He will do these things so that his people may declare his praise. But what do his people do in response? Verse 24 says, But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. But despite all of this, Despite their unfaithfulness, he is faithful. Our Savior removes the sin of his people for his own glory. He says in verse 25, and we may rejoice as we read, it says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. At this point, the reader should say, Why? Why would God, the Holy One, the creator of the heavens and earth, the only one who has no peer, the one of whom none can compare, save rebels? This is something that we must get a hold of and hold on to well. God does not and will not save you because you are good. Like John Piper memorably has said, he does not save you because you're kind of cute. He does not save you because in some way you are in and of yourself worthy of saving. You are a rebel to the almighty creator of heaven and earth. God saves you for his own sake. He is not coerced by some head nod to his authority or some magical salvation prayer. He chooses 
to remember our sins no more. At this point, and you guys are going to love me because I'm almost done. <laughs> At this point, let me ask a few questions and we'll be finished. Are you here today and have never humbled yourself before your creator, confessed your sin to him, trusted that he and he alone will save you? To you, I would say, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, that through the precious blood of his servant, Jesus, he will blot out your sin and forgive you. He will dispel your fear and draw near to you. He will save you. For the church, are you here today trying to find satisfaction, daily salvation, and any other besides your true Savior? Have you been blind to your passions, your subtle idolatry that mocks the one who has redeemed you? Do you do as Paul warned, continue in sin that grace may abound? To the unbeliever, repent and believe the gospel. To the believer, repent and continue to believe the gospel. God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Let us magnify God's name together for he alone is our savior. We are his people. He has blotted out our sins. May we rejoice in that today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you because you are good. You are the Holy One. We touch very little on that today, but throughout Isaiah, right from Isaiah 6 and, and onward throughout Isaiah, you speak about your holiness. You are completely other. You are one who is magnificent in holiness separate, completely separate from sin, and yet you have drawn near to us. We know through the explanation of the gospel, through your servant who has come, that in his coming, he has made a way that you don't frivolously blot out our transgressions, but yet to satisfy your holiness, you sent Jesus to die to pay the penalty for our sins so that you might do that thing for your people. I pray that we would glorify you, that your praise would be on our lips, that we would magnify you as our one true Savior. I pray that we would look to nothing else but you alone, that our thoughts, our hearts, our passions would be on you, that nothing else would come at all in comparison to you, for we know you alone satisfy you alone save. You are our redeemer. We have no need to fear. I pray that we wouldn't live as people in fear, but we would live as those who trust in you, those who have been saved by you, those who for your own sake have forgiven. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.